All right, so you need an explanation of my nicknames. Well, DJ Scary Barry was, uh, it was a very scary time in my life as a disc jockey in Tampa, and it wasn't uh, something I'm very proud of, but that was that part. But Oreo was given to me. So it was on my senior yearbook in high school, went to Florida. I moved from Lillywhite, Indiana to Florida and, and explored a whole new realm of, I didn't know my little town in Indiana uh, how great life was and how big heaven's going to be. And so I moved to Florida and played basketball and listened to a certain type of music. And so I was known as Barry Oreo Smith. And, and so I've got a little brother inside of me, you know. So, so I've really enjoyed the music uh, today. Part. I like the singing too. That was all right. But the music was good, you know what I'm saying? So uh, that's where Oreo comes from. So now, now, now you know. And we can pretty much pray and go home at this point. Glad, glad that you're here. I grew up in, like I said, in Indiana, a very small town just outside of Indianapolis. My dad was, uh, started out sort of as a farmer, and he sold tomatoes uh, for about 80 cents a week. Uh, they, were, they were extremely, extremely poor. And this was quite a while ago. My oldest brother couldn't sleep in the crib in the winter because the air would come up through the floor. It was so cold that the crib would, it would make him sick, so he had to sleep in bed. And I just found this out this last week, that the two oldest brothers, and my, oldest, my brothers are really old, um, so the two oldest brothers, when they were in this same house, they would wake up oftentimes with snow on the bed. So that, that was poor, really poor. Then my dad became a residential developer contractor, and he began to, to actually do pretty well. And he would take me to different job sites when I was a little kid. And I would show up, and, or he'd take me to the breakfast place where all the boys would hang out. And I would show up, and they'd go, hey, Lloyd, his name, my dad's name is Lloyd, Lloyd, I see you brought the boss with you, and that was me. And I'm the youngest, and I'm the baby, and I'm spoiled, so deal with it. So that, that, was how, that was how I grew up, and I thought it was really cool, and I got to see my dad do this. And he would build spec homes, speculation homes. They would, he would just build a house from the ground up and then hopefully sell it, and he had his real estate license as well. But it was mainly the development. He even developed an entire subdivision in Indiana called Chadwick Village, and um, the names of the streets, are all, many of them are all uh, Berry Drive, Dale Court. You can see this one. This is Angeli Way. That's my niece on the far left there, uh, my brother Dale, uh, who has a, a road out there. And so we really do. It really happened. It's on the internet. I was on Facebook. So you know it's true. And, but, it, but he really did do a development there. And my, my son always loves to go there and look at the different roads when we, would, when we visit in Indiana. It was pretty cool. So I've got a total of three brothers, uh, all much older. And they were all in real estate. They dabbled a little bit in oil in Kentucky there for a while, but they've always sold real estate. And my youngest brother, who's 10 years older than me, right? So that's my youngest brother's 10 years older, and they all go much older from there. Um, I'm trying to make myself seem a little bit younger at 51. That's all I can hold on to is how old my family is. So when I got out of college, guess what I tried to do? Sell real estate, right. And so I had a degree in finance, but I went out, and I think uh, my whole time that I had my license in Florida, I rented one house and made about $27 total. So I was a pretty successful guy. Uh, I think probably the equivalent of my dad's 80 cents a week selling tomatoes, so I followed in my father's footsteps. Sadly, that was great. So we moved out here to California uh, 17 years ago, a little more, and um, one of the first things I did in those first few years was get my license. And I don't really actively recruit clients, and, but family and friends, it's, it's fun to help them. It's fun to, uh, to uh, go show property and, and to list and, and sell. So real, real estate's just in the, the Smith blood. And we've seen that type of scenario happen all the time. How many, how many people have musicians, uh, artists, whose parents were musicians? 
That's just kind of, it's just, it kind of just happens. We've seen uh, many family members follow in their parents' footsteps going into the military, going into the services. And, and sometimes it's fourth, fifth, sixth generation of people who served in our armed forces, uh, construction workers, actors, and even in real estate. So often we follow in the footsteps of our parents who may have followed in the footsteps of their parents. So what we really need to consider is how and who am I influencing? Not just my kids, but even this younger generation. What example am I setting for them? Who is my future family as we wrap this series up? Your family is not just your parents or kids. It's not just aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas. We're influencing our kids and their friends, those who hang out in our homes, and and an entire generation after that will have seen how we treated them and how we treat each other. We're responsible for shaping that next generation by who we are and by what we do. And we are who we are because of those who have come before us. I am who I am today because of a past generation. You are somebody's previous generation. You're a snapshot in someone's mind someday in the future. They may vaguely remember you. And I remember some one of my parents or one of my friend's parents was named DJ Scary Bear. I don't know, something. But I remember that and, and our influence will have impacted them and made a difference in their life. The reason I'm a pastor today uh, is because of my mom who prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And she held me up when I was born. She, I, she was 41 when she had me. And 51 years ago, that was pretty scary. That was, a very, that was not a very young person to have a baby. She, I came out with 10 fingers and 10 toes, and she was like, we're good. Uh, and was very happy with that. And so she held me up to the Lord, and she dedicated me to God. And, and uh, I was our last, last, and I was certainly an oops. Um, for sure, 10 years after my oldest, my youngest brother, she held me up and dedicated. She always thought I'd be an evangelist. And if you'd have known me 30, 35 years ago, if you'd have known me last week, that's probably <laughs> just not a very good option of what you'd think that I would be an evangelist or that I would be a preacher of some, of some type. It just wasn't in the, in the cards. And so the entrepreneur and the realtor in me, that was my dad and my brother. It was their godly influence in, in me. It was their example. It was their flexible schedule to be able to go to not only my sports and the things that I would do, but they got to go to Purdue Boilermakers uh, football games and basketball games, and, and they got to go to my sporting events, and they got to go to Indiana Pacer games, and then their flexibility and being able to serve the church. And it was just pretty amazing the kind of life that they had and their, their example of dealing ethically and profitably. Heck, it was my brother who, whose devotion to the Chicago Bears and the Chicago White Sox was injected into me, and now I've been cursed with that, particularly the Chicago Bears and these horrible sports teams, and now my son is a Bears fan too. It all goes back to my brother, and my son will look at me and go, Dad, why do we root for such horrible teams? I'm saying, I know, I blame my brother. It's his fault. And, I, and so, But the Kings is me. I injected that. He's here today. My, my family's here today. Um, I injected the Sacramento Kings curse onto my son, but he doesn't seem to mind the season tickets. Those seem to be okay for him. Everyone's got a story. Everyone's been influenced towards God or away from God because to remain neutral is to go away from God. I'm the first preacher in my family, and so my kids are the first preacher's kids in our families, PKs they're called. And I have to tell you, we've tried very hard to have them not grow up with the typical pressures of a preacher's family, of a preacher's kid's family. We don't want them feeling like they live in a glass house. And we don't want them to feel like the, the horrible darts of passionate parishioners. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever done that with the Matthews kids. But uh, some of you, you're well-meaning. But boy, it's, uh, it's pretty difficult to feel, to feel the pressure 
that some well-meaning parishioners seem to think that pastor's kids shouldn't misbehave and really don't have any problems. And they do, and we all do, and we're all broken, we're all cracked, and we're all trying to figure out how to live this life. And so we, my wife and I have, it's cost us a lot to shield them from that, but I've, we've done fairly decent at that, at least I think. They probably have a different story, but uh, I think we've done that. But one thing I didn't set a good example of is in prayer. And, and uh, my devotion to prayer, we have a prayer ministry and all that. We have people pray for us, and I do pray, but I haven't really done that. I know of one pastor that was talking to his son and trying to instill this, and he says, son, listen, if God says to go run your head into a brick wall, then you start running immediately as fast as you can and pray for a hole to open up before you get there. Like, that's, that's the kind of obedience. That's the kind of prayer life we should have. And and my wife and I, we're starting a brand new ministry. It's a website. It's an online community. And we're just starting that this week. If everything goes well, we're going to launch. And I hope that you'll write this down. A few people did in the last service. And I hope you guys were much better than them and support to me. Uh, but it's a brand new ministry called YouChoose.Community. Y-O-U, the, the word choose, dot community. YouChoose.Community. And, and it's going to be our ministry. It's going to be a fun way to reach out a fun way to connect people maybe from other parts of the country that you'd love to see meet Jesus. And then we also are going to try to launch uh, home churches out of that. So it's not, not to take away. It's to, I'd really love your input. And if you like it, to like it and share it and share it with some peop- people that you think might know it or might need it. So stop by there and do that this week if you would. We are who we are because of family that came before us. And, and those who come after us are going to be influenced by us. That's, this is our future family that we're talking about. So we wrap this series up, and we're currently in the process of making our mark on this future group of people. There's a story in the Bible that covers about 60 years. It's found in the book of Genesis. It covers about two-thirds of the book of Genesis. And you're probably familiar with the second half, but you need to grab a hold of the first half to really make the second half come alive. And I hope if you'll hang in there with me, that will happen here. And you're going you're gonna to really like this this morning. And, and in the world and everything that's going on, I think this is, this is one of those messages that isn't going to fix you right now, right? It, not that anything's going to fix us, but it's not something, we're not talking about something I, what do I do today that I can check that off that I did it. Like I listened to the pastor, I listened to the word, and I did it. This is more of an investment in the future and really making a difference. And it goes back to the most fam- famous family in all the world, Brad and Angelina. And uh, no, it goes back to the Abraham. And Abraham had a son by the name of Isaac. Isaac had twins, Esau and Jacob. As the oldest, Esau would get a double share of the inheritance. So if you took the inheritance and divided it up into thirds, he would get two-thirds, and the younger son would get a third, and also the right to oversee and judge the entire family when the dad would pass on. We'll come back to them in just a second. Jacob, the younger of those two, uh, had twin, uh, the younger of the two twins, had 12 sons, and one of those was Joseph. Joseph was 17 when he recognized how badly his brothers hated him. Joseph was the favorite. You might remember Joseph in the amazing Technicolor dream coat, right? He had the favorite coat from his dad that, that had given him. And so he was the favorite because, and this is very dysfunctional, and I love that about the Bible. Um, he was the son of his father's favorite wife. So that's just kind of sad, right? So the, the dad has the favorite wives. The, the, one wife is enough, and she's great, and, but I can't imagine having multiple ones, let alone saying that's the favorite. But that's why all the other brothers hated Joseph, because his dad had a favorite wife, and he was the only son of that mother. And so Jacob uh, 
says to his son Joseph, hey, I want you to go check on the boys. Well, the 10 of them weren't where they're supposed to be. So Joseph is walking up to see them and say, hey, dad's wanting to check in on you. And while on his way up there, the 10 of them say, let's kill that dirty so-and-so. We're tired of Joseph. We're tired of the favoritism. Let's kill him. Yeah, let's do that. So they grab him. They throw him in a cistern. And, and then they figure out what they're going to do with him. And then they go, you know what? Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him. After all, he is our brother, right? Kind, caring brothers. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him, make some money. And that'll be, eh, you don't get that? I, I find that just ironic. That's pretty amazing. So they take off his super technicolor dream coat. They rip it up. They throw some blood on it. And they decide to break their daddy's heart and tell him that, hey, some animal must have got him, but Joseph's gone. And so they sell him uh, to some people going through uh, the city. Here's the 17-year-old boy living a privileged life. He's the favorite by far. And now he's probably shackled to a camel. He's no stranger to um, slaves. His dad had him. He, he knows what's about to happen. And he gets to Egypt and he's sold to a guy named Potiphar who was captain of the guard of Pharaoh, the most powerful person in all the world. And here's what we find out about Joseph. Joseph decided to live his life as if God was blessing it even when it looked like God was cursing it. I put this on the screen for you. Joseph determined to live as if he's blessed even when it looked like a curse. Joseph decided to remain committed even when it would have been easy to bail on God. Listen, if you don't get anything else, get this. Joseph decided to live his life with God as number one and a number one priority, and, and have a mindset and a framework that God loves me and has my best interest for me, even when everything around me is going, is going to hell, is going bad, is falling apart. It was that kind of mindset that he desperately needed because scriptures, particularly in Genesis, continue to say, and God was with Joseph, and God was with him, and it was not a great scene. Starts in Genesis 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, there it is, so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. Now, he's still a slave. He's just prospering as a slave. Verse 3, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. And here is where the blessing of Joseph takes an even more of a turn. Potiphar's wife got to be kind of sweet on Joseph. Joseph was a handsome man, and so Potiphar's wife wanted to connect with him in a very deep way. And Joseph said, no way, that would dishonor my master, and that would dishonor my God. And, and I'm looking at that going, really, you're worried about dishonoring God? This is the God who lets you be sold? This is the God who didn't step in when your brothers sold you as a slave when you were 17? That's the God you want to honor? Potiphar's wife was not having it. She, she didn't like being rejected. I don't know of very many women who like to be rejected. Um, so Joseph gets framed by her. Uh, she's saying she raped he raped her, and he didn't, and so he leaves, Then he's thrown into a dungeon. Now, when you're a slave and you're thrown into a dungeon, there's not a lot to look forward to. Nobody's going to come and get you. You're not going to make bail. You're, you're pretty much done. You're just going to sit there and, and fulfill time. But Joseph kept doing the right thing, even though things weren't going his way. Chapter 39, verse 20 on the screen says, While Joseph was there in prison, 
the Lord was with him. I'm kind of tired of the Lord being with me at this point if I'm Joseph. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. It's the same thing again, right? It's deja vu. And when he was responsible for all that was done there, the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care in prison as a slave because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. The Lord was with Joseph again in prison. And he gets the favor of the prison warden. Now listen, if God's kindness and blessing is being in with the prison warden, I just don't want, count me out on that. I don't want to do that. That's not the kind of blessing I want from God. That's not the kind of in that I want to have. I don't know about you, but I would rather just be kind of average outside of prison. Thank you very much. But Joseph just keeps doing the right thing. And he keeps living as if God's blessing him, even when it looks like God's cursing him. Even when he keeps doing the right thing, bad things continue to happen. Where did he get that kind of faith from? That kind of amazing faith. Now remember, he's got to be missing his mom and dad. He was a privileged young man, the favorite, the youngest at the time. He was was living this charmed life. And he's probably needing therapy for what his ten brothers did to him, right? He's probably needing to come down. They sold, his ten brothers sold him into slavery. Sometime later, Pharaoh throws his baker and his cupbearer into prison. They crossed him in some way. So they throw him into prison, into the dungeon where Joseph is. And they have these dreams, and they need to be interpreted. Well, God interprets the dream through Joseph, and it wasn't very good for the baker. He's out of there. But for the cupbearer, he's going to be restored in three days and get back to be Potiphar's cupbearer. And, and so Joseph says, hey, dude, when you... That's not in the original Hebrew, dude, but it's there. You just have to read it. Anyway, he says, hey, dude, listen, when you get out of here, uh, tell somebody about me in here because nobody's coming for me. I'm a slave. My family doesn't know I'm here. They think I'm dead. I don't deserve this. I never would have done that to Potiphar's wife. Be sure to remember me when you get out in three days. And so the guy's, oh, yeah, sure thing, man. No question. I'll do that. And so he leaves and forgets it for two more years. Two additional years. He's sitting in prison. Waking up to the same thing every morning. It stinks. But hey, the prison guard likes me. I got that going for me. The prison warden, he likes me. Pharaoh has a dream. Can't get interpreted. The cupbearer goes, oh, two years ago. uh, Pharaoh, your highness, your excellency, you remember when you threw me in there? It wasn't good for the baker, but I got out. A guy interpreted our dreams, and it came just like he said he would. Everything happened exactly the same. And so Pharaoh sends for Joseph, and they get him cleaned up and give him a shave and a haircut, and, and he goes into the palace, into the throne room to meet with the most powerful man in all the world, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, hey, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph goes, no, I can't. But my God can tell you what your dreams mean which he insinuated then that Pharaoh is accountable to God. There was a tie in there, I think, that Joseph was trying to make. So Joseph interprets his dream and says, listen, you're going to have seven years of bountiful harvest. It's going to be amazing. It's just going to be, it's going to be, gives him then some unsolicited advice of famine, and it's going to be terrible, and there's going to be a wrecked economy. And Joseph gives him then some unsolicited advice. Pharaoh didn't ask for this, but Joseph says, listen, you need to find somebody real administrative, a really sharp guy to put him in charge of all the grain silos, and you need to tax the people 20% of the grain, and you need to store them in these silos, and then the extra grain will be there, and people will be thrilled to pay you, and you're going to be very wealthy, and you're going to have plenty of food during this seven bad years, but you've got to find someone really sharp to lead it, and Pharaoh goes, Joe, you do it. Genesis 41 verse 39 says, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning 
and wise as you. You shall be in, listen, you shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Dude, he's in prison. They shave him and give him a haircut. Yeah, they probably put on some decent clothes. He's been in prison for who knows how long, at least two plus years. He, he was judged and thrown in the du- dungeon for raping the Potiphar, Potiphar's wife. He didn't do it, but that's what he's accused of, which was under Pharaoh's, his, his guy. And now Pharaoh, he's now the prime minister of Egypt, second in command of everything that's important. Now that's God's blessing. That's cool. I'll take that. The Egyptians become rich. They got all kinds of grain. The famine starts. No one can grow food. People begin to starve. People come from all over to buy Pharaoh's stockpile of grain. And then two years into the famine, Jacob's sons, Joseph's family, were among those who needed to go to buy grain in Egypt. And Joseph was there leading the distribution of food. And when he gets there, he sees his brothers. They're all bowed down, just like that dream that we didn't talk about, but it happened in Genesis, that they were all bowed down to him to Joseph, and he recognizes them. Now, Joseph's 39 years old now. It's been 22 years since he's seen his brothers. Last time he saw them, he was going into a cistern. They're bowed down to his leadership now, and then he remembers. He remembers the voices as he sat in that, or stood in that cistern of them talking and exchanging. He remembers the clank of the coins as his 10 older brothers sold him into slavery. He remembers the day he was a dead man. He remembers the horror of a 17-year-old boy shackled to a camel headed to Egypt. It all surfaces. He remembers all those unjust years sitting in prison for no reason. And Joseph knew in that moment their destiny was in his hands. But it was also in that moment that Joseph remembers a scene from his childhood. And this is where we, we often don't connect the parts. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau, the twins. Growing up, Esau was the firstborn, because one of them's got to come out first. So he was the firstborn. He was more of a woodsman, right? He was more of a redneck out, and out there with a four-wheel drive. And Jacob was more of a cook. Nothing wrong with that. And one time Esau went out and he went hunting and he's trying to find food. He didn't do it. He came in. He was exhausted. He was, he was just about ready to pass out. And Jacob was at home cooking stew. And he says, give me a bowl of that stew. And Jacob goes, all right, give me your birthright for a cup of this stew. And Esau, who's a woodsman and a, and a redneck or whatever he is, he, he wasn't thinking very properly. That's what we're just going to say. He's just really hungry. He was a little bit delirious. He goes, well, fine. My birthright's not going to do any good if I'm dead. Deal. Give me the stew, you get the birthright. That was an expensive cup of stew. It cost him double the inheritance. Time goes by and their dad, Isaac, is all but blind. He can barely see. He's about ready to die and so he starts to give his blessings, which are, it's a legally binding ceremony that he's given his blessings. The oldest one would rule basically as the patriarch and judge the rest of the family. He would be there to make the decisions. He was the grand poobah of the family and, and it was the oldest one that got that. So now you talk about Jerry Springer dysfunctional. Here it gets mom and Jacob, the younger of the two, they conspire together to trick daddy into thinking that Jacob is the oldest, Esau. And they put hairy 
hands and because he was all, you know, rah, 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 and Jacob was a cook. And then, again, nothing wrong with that. Cooks are great because I love to eat. But the point is, they were, they were, I was more like Jacob and yeah, whatever. So, so uh, they fake him being Esau. Isaac then, because he's blind, can't see. He goes, well, you sound like my youngest, but your hair on your hand, which was like a goat or something, you're the oldest, so he gives him his blessing. These added blessings, and now he's, he's the patriarch, and now he's in charge. And so Esau then comes in from out in the woods and goes, hey, Dad, I'm here for my blessing. He goes, what? Who's that? It's Esau. I already gave it to Esau. That wasn't me. That was Jacob, that stinking weasel. And it was then, it was then that he... he said, I will avenge myself and I will kill my younger brother for doing this. As soon as dad's dead, I'm going after him. And Jacob heard about it, so he hightails it out of there and goes to live with his uncle who had a couple of daughters. He had a daughter named Leah and a daughter named Rachel. Leah was kind of ugly and older and, and he didn't like her. I'm just being honest. The Bible's pretty clear about this. And Rachel was beautiful and had a nice figure. It's the Bible. You ought to read it sometime. It's pretty interesting. But the younger one, the pretty one, couldn't get had, get kids, and that was a big deal, but Leah could, so he had kids with her. And long, dysfunctional story later, he has four wives, uh, or two wives and a couple other gals, and 11 sons over 20 years. Like I said, it's crazy. So he was super wealthy. They couldn't even hardly figure out how to feed his, his herds uh, of, of cat, cattle and sheep and everything. After 20 years, God says, go back, go back to the land of your father's. And I will be with you. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm him, I'm going, uh, I've heard the I will be with you part. And that doesn't seem to work out for me. You better be with me because you know who's back there is Esau. And Esau's going to kill me. And he's going to kill my sons. And he's going to take my wives. He's going to take my property. This is not a good thing. And everybody understood the tension that went between Jacob and Esau. Wives knew about it. Kids knew about it. Joseph knew that Esau planned to kill him. It was bad. And that's why Jacob ran. And so the kids are going, wait, we're going to go visit Uncle Esau? Um, isn't that dangerous? Yeah, super dangerous. He's supposed to kill me. It's been 20 years. He's probably madder than he ever was. That doesn't say that, but I mean, you can, you can imagine the conversations. So they make the long journey back to the land of his fathers. Genesis 33, verse 1. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. Again, this is the Bible. Just, just picture this, verse 2. He put the female servants and their children in the front. He put ugly Leah and her children next. And then he put his favorite, the hot one, Rachel, and Joseph in the back. And the idea was, well, if they kill the first wives and those kids, the other two can run. And then maybe they get ugly Leah, but at least my favorite. And jo- Isn't that nuts? Like, I'm not supposed to play favorites between my kids. One's a boy, one's a girl, so I can always play that card. But if they were both boys or... You're not supposed to play favorites. This is clear favorites in every way. The Bible's awesome. Notice that Joseph's the only son mentioned by name. Jacob bows down seven times to his brother, the wives, the slaves. They all watch. They don't know what's going to happen. It's been 20 years since they've seen each other. And then they all bow down, including Leah and Rachel and Joseph himself. And, and so Esau takes off after Jacob. He's running. And you, know, you can just imagine the tension. And it, and, it, and it all escalates. And the music's playing on the big screen. And then he hugs him and embraces him and kisses him and accepts the forgiveness. Of course, man, that's no problem. It's all done. And everybody breathes a sigh of relief. And here's the thing. Joseph, Joseph had heard that story over and over and over again. Yeah, as a little kid, he saw it happen. 
But they probably told that story over and over and over. The, the day that Esau spared Jacob's life. When Jacob deserved whatever it was Esau was going to dish out on him. But on that day, Esau forgave. And that's why you're still alive, Joseph. That's why you're still alive. All those stories came back. And here we are 30 plus years later. 30 plus years later. And Joseph is standing there with all of his brothers bowed down to him. And he has their life in their hands. They deserved to be killed, let alone not get any food. But Joseph chooses to do what he saw his uncle Esau do many years ago and forgive and extend grace and mercy to 10 brothers who didn't deserve any mercy. They deserve punishment for what they did. They sold him. Talk about selling somebody out. Joseph tells him, hey guys, it's me. It's me, brother. Because he probably looked totally different, had a probably different language, different look. He says, hey, what you guys intended for evil, God meant for good. And then he blessed them, and he fed them, and their family. And it's a really awesome story. The moral of the story is this. What your children and your grandchildren and your nieces and nephews, what they see you do now will lay the groundwork for what they're going to do a generation from now in times of crisis. They're going to look back. They won't forget when you chose to stay in a marriage because it was a difficult marriage to stay in. They won't forget that. They won't forget when you continue to pay your bills and pay your debts and to pay your tithe. When you just did, it didn't make any sense financially. They won't forget that. They'll remember that. When it was easy to run away from relationships, but you chose not to run away from the relationships. Dad, what if your sons and your grandsons are taking their cue from you on how they treat other women, how they treat future daughters and future wives, how they handle temptation, how they respond in a crisis? Because odds are they're watching you. They're taking their cue from you. And moms, it's no different for you. What if your daughters and granddaughters take their cue from you and how they treat your son-in-law? And how they raise their grandchildren. How they manage their money. How they manage God's call on them just like you're managing God's call on your life. What if you're determining now what happens in future generations? Because odds are you are. Bottom line is actions don't just speak louder than words. They echo into a future generation. Into a future family. What will echo from our lives? into that next generation. Because it's bigger and broader and more powerful than just louder words. We can manage our money. We can face and overcome temptation. We can manage relational drama. And we can do it all in a godly way and by a godly example. So what should we do? And what should we do differently? What What needs to change? And why wouldn't we change it? See, this isn't about just today. It's about the next week, the next month. It's about investing for the next several years, what's going to happen 20, 30 years from now? And the example that we set. I'm not a realtor because I thought it up, and I thought, geez, I, I, I think I'll sell some real estate. I'm that way because of my dad and my brothers. They did that to me. My dad was born in 1923, and the way that he handled money, the way that he handled his faith, the way that he handled his job, career, whatever it was, it echoes into the life of me and my generation, and now it is echoing into my own kids' generation. As I just sold my brother-in-law a home, 
We haven't closed on it, so it's not done yet. But my kids and my family of four got to be with my brother-in-law and his family of five, and we spent almost the half a day out there at that place running around in the yard and out by the pool. We didn't go swimming, but out by the pool and running through the house. And it, That's all because of my dad and my brother 40 years ago in the influence they had on my life. That's real estate. How much more important is our faith, matters of faith, our example to our kids? And some of you are young and go, this doesn't apply to me. Oh, heavens, this so applies to you. Because you're watching, and when you don't have a good example, sometimes you can't change that. You can't check your parents in for another set. But you know what's right and wrong because you know God. So don't think this doesn't apply to you because you can learn this now. You will make such a difference later, even in your sphere of influence and who you are. You have a future family. And it's not just your aunts and uncles and moms and dads and kids in the future. It's the people that we influence for the kingdom of Christ. That's what's really important. I put this on the screen. Who we are and what we do will impact the next generation. What echo, what echo will your future family hear from your life? Let's pray. God, this is, a, this is a pretty big topic and this whole idea of influence. And honestly, Lord, this is one where I'm so grateful for your word and I'm grateful for the story of Joseph and, and Jacob and all the dysfunction. But this is, this is a message This is a part of Scripture that would be really, really easy to blow off. It would be really, really easy to go, that was a nice story, and to go home and go to lunch and hang out and just not do anything about it. This is an easy story to dismiss because we're too old or we're too young, or we don't have kids, or we don't live with our family. We're alone. We're single. We're divorced. Whatever it is. This is a really easy message to just say, that's going to be great for somebody. But your word penetrates our very hearts and souls and mind and strength and dividing soul and joints and moral. You can put this deep into us and help us to understand that no matter what, yes, we're applying this to future family. We're applying this to next generations. We're wrapping up this series and how important the family is. We get that. But this is flat out about spirituality and influence. And it applies today. It applies tomorrow. It's an investment in the future. It's an investment right now. And the big dividends are going to be just like we see with Joseph. He remembers what happened way back with Uncle Esau and the mercy that was given. Yeah, there are those big critical moments, but there's everyday moments in how we live our life and how important it is to live for you and to share you and to influence others with our godly lifestyle, not with words, but with actions and love and mercy and grace with friendship, sincerity, and authenticity, that we can bring our broken lives and share them with one another and be broken together, knowing we're made whole in the person of Jesus Christ. And if there's someone here who has not given their life to you, has not been made whole by you, I pray that today would be that day. That they wouldn't leave here without talking with one of the staff or somebody, whoever brought them here. They go to the prayer room after this and visit with somebody about this. 
for the rest of us, God, help us to live for you and to think about our future family. In Jesus' name, amen.